Thank you, brethren. And if we'll turn in Zechariah to uh, Zechariah chapter 3, I'd like to continue our studies where we began on uh, Sunday night. We went, continued a little bit last night into the prophecies of this prophet, Zechariah, who was a priest and a prophet. And it's interesting, uh, tonight the, the picture that we see here is, is so encouraging to all of us, I think. Uh, we see here a crisis, we see here a coming, and we see here a crowning. And all of them reveal the glory of the Lord Jesus in one of the most striking passages in all of the Bible. All right, so I think you'll agree with me as we work through it. Now, where we've been so far, we're going to be launching into chapter 3 here in a moment, but where we've been so far is to look back and, and the previous three visions, and they all prophesied restoration of the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and the Lord's temple. And these things were given in graphic detail in the first couple of chapters. And then last night, in the will of the Lord, we were able to uh, look ahead at some of the prophecies given in the, the sixth, seventh, and eighth visions. We looked at, I kind of went out of chronological order here uh, last night. And that where we see where the focus there was on judgment. So the first three visions were focused on restoration. The last three are focused on judgment, particularly of the Gentile nations. And the links we saw last night between these three visions here in Zechariah and the book of Revelation are, are staggering and very revealing. It's interesting, the world we live in, uh, up until 1948 anyway, uh, Israel as a nation did not exist for some 1,813 years. And for many people, the nation of Israel or even the people, the Jewish people, were, were considered a nuisance people or, or people that were not regarded highly and, and also to the extent even that they were despised and persecuted. You know, we hear about the, the pogroms that happened in, in, uh, in Russia in, in the early 1900s and talking to Brother uh, Drayluck last night, his, his forebears were, were persecuted there. He, we have a personal link here right in the fellowship to the pogroms and and then, of course, the Holocaust in, in Germany and, and all the suffering with that. Israel uh, has been, by many, forgotten. And sadly to say, we must admit, even in so-called Christendom and, and those who claim to be Christian and claim to be students of the Bible even, they take hold of what we have labeled replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel and therefore the promises like these we're reading of here in Zechariah no longer apply to the nation of Israel. They apply to believers in the church age and it gets all convoluted and therefore you can't have a literal millennium if you, if you do that because you, the words won't allow you to do that. And language becomes meaningless. When you, when you allegorize the words, then, then it becomes meaningless. I can't validate anything you're saying if you take the words I'm saying and put all kinds of metaphorical connections to them that aren't there. So we, we happily see here in chapter 3 one of the great events. And, and picture yourself here. 
Because you and I stood in a similar position to Joshua, the high priest, at a point we're talking about our conversion. What a picture is painted. Verse 1, Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, Joshua, the high priest, in the Aaronic priestly line, survived through the captivity back in the land. Joshua just happens to be the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Uh, and here he is, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, which we believe is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So three figures given here. Joshua the high priest, and as a high priest, the high priest is always in the Old Testament representative of his people. He stands before his people before God, right? And so he, he represents the people before God in intercession and advocacy. And then he teaches the people about God. So he has that ministry to the people. And here he's representative of the remnant, the believers in his generation, but also in the generation when our Lord returns, the second coming. And Satan is opposing him. And I believe this is a scene that could be painted for every individual believer, particularly though in this circumstance for the people of the Old Testament, people of Israel. But when you are hearing the gospel, when I was hearing the gospel, there was a lot more going on in the unseen places than you and I knew about. You may have thought, I may have, I did think, I can say for myself, that, well, I mean, I'm hearing this gospel message on the radio, somebody's giving on the radio, I'm listening to it, and I'll just work it through in my own mind, decide whether I want to believe it or not. Right? Kind of like, like we're God in the universe almost. In our lost state, that's how we think. But we find out here that there was opposition to us being saved. And as Brother pointed out in his prayer, he's not satisfied with opposition to us being saved. He continues to oppose us after we're saved as the accuser of the brethren. This is a malignantly evil person. Lucifer, Satan, the devil. And so we see what a picture. And, and, and you just, you know, the, the drama of the moment, don't miss it. You, you almost wonder, well, what's going to happen here? Joshua's standing here, then Satan's opposing, and the angel of the Lord, who's going to win? And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. You hear oftentimes in our circles today, people commanding in their prayers, commanding Satan to do this and commanding Satan to do that. We don't have authority in the Scripture to do that. The Lord Himself doesn't do that. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Now that we have authority to say. But we do it in His name, under His authority, not ours. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. So here we see now Satan is opposing, standing at the right hand at the end of verse 1 to oppose him. He's resisting the purposes of God for Israel. And the Lord Jesus, as the advocate of the nation, 
says Satan, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a specific place all the way through the Old Testament. It's not representative of the church. It's not representative of New York City. It's not representative of Hollywood or Fort Lauderdale or Miami or Dubuque or anywhere else, is it? It's, it's, it's Jerusalem, Mount Zion. The place where Deuteronomy 11 says God says that his eyes are always on that city. Have been throughout the history Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You ever thought of yourself that way as a born-again Christian? You know what that means, of course. The fire is the fire of judgment. Is this not a brand that was already set to be put in the fire and plucked out? Like taking a, a piece of a log out of a campfire that's already maybe a little charred from the flame, but then pulling it out while it's still smoking, maybe even. John Wesley always said that about himself, that he was a brand plucked from the burning when he was just a young man. I think he was only like six years old. His father was a pastor in a particular church in the, in the manse, the house in which they lived, caught fire during the night. Susanna Wesley had, I think, something like 11 children. And, and he was near the youngest, and, and he was on the second floor, and they, they were standing out, jump, jump. And the fire was coming up behind him, and he didn't want to jump. And finally, he did jump to safety. And he never forgot that picture. After he was saved, I was a brand plucked from the burning. Well, that's, we have that in some of our hymns too, don't we? When we see what God has done for us in our salvation, beloved, it will motivate us, I hope, to drink more deeply of the fountain of living waters, the Lord Jesus himself, to draw near to him, to appreciate him even more. He didn't have to do this for you or me, but he did. Is this not a brand black one? Is this not someone who could, he could do nothing to save himself? That's what he meant. He was destined to condemnation and could do nothing to save himself. And you were like that. And I was like that. And there are many others we've been praying about, some of them already tonight, that are in that position where they're still in the place of condemnation. You know, that staggering verse in John chapter 3, we often quote John 3.16, but the last verse of that chapter is alarming. Verse 36, the wrath of God abideth on him. And one Hebrew teacher told me years ago, that's like, it's like a sheet hovering over him. They like to think, well, the wrath of God, that'll happen to me after I die. No, that's not what that verse, the wrath of God is already in present tense, abiding, hovering over him, waiting to fall on him. In their present condition. And that's where you and I were. See, people are misled. All around us. They think, oh, I've got time. I've got time. How much time do you think you have? How much time did Sammy have out here? I'm sure he wasn't thinking that that night. Yeah. He could do all the tricks on the motorcycle, but one night the trick didn't work, did it? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Oh, what a picture. You get the picture, how graphic it is. 
That's a picture of someone who's lost. Now, he's representative of the nation. In their lost condition, covered in filthy garments. Garments that you, they're so filthy, you can't clean them. With fuller soap, you couldn't clean them. In other words, you were helpless and hopeless, according to Romans chapter 5, right? Impotent to save ourselves, without power, without strength. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Oh, I love this. This is a conversion. This is what happens at conversion. That moment. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. This is what happens when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Savior. You go from being clothed in filthy garments that you can do nothing about. You inherited them, actually. We find out we inherited those filthy garments from Adam. We didn't even sin one sin. We were born in the world with them. And we added to them right away, too. (laughs) The point in time came when we recognized, Lord, I can't do anything. Please save me. Take away the filthy garments. The only one in the whole universe who could say it with authority. Take away the the one who has the power to condemn us for all eternity. Take away the filthy garments. And replace them rich robes. That's the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? And I've got to think the Lord Jesus in Luke 15 had this in mind as he gave that story of the prodigal son. And I said, and then Zechariah, remember Zechariah as in the priesthood, he's trained, he understands the priestly garments. And so he pipes up right away and put that turban on his head. <laughs> the turban that the, that the priest wore, he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head because he's the high priest. And they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. That is in agreement. As the advocate. Let me ask you. Have you ever been at a place in your life where you knew you got away from the Lord? Different events and circumstances happened to cause that. That can happen multiple times in a believer's life. And you got away from the Lord and and you suddenly, through whatever means the Lord used. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a phone call. Maybe it was something you heard on the radio or television. Maybe in your own personal reading. But suddenly you were reminded, wait a minute. I have an advocate in heaven. Jesus Christ the righteous. What am I doing standing out here outside the camp? I need to go to my advocate. And did you do it? And when you did, what kind of response did you get? I can say it on personal authority. He is there for you. (laughs) And He will advocate. And His advocacy works. (laughs) The Father listens to His prayers. So if you know someone like that, maybe a friend or a relative, advocate for them in prayer, but tell them about the advocate they have Christ Jesus as well. That's First John 2, 1 and 2. Well, then the angel of the Lord, beginning in verse 6, admonishes Joshua. 
the high priest. After the action that has been displayed in verses 6 then through 10 of chapter 3, show the Lord in his first coming, it's prophesied. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus said the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, that is, if you will obey the instructions of the word of God, then, you know, it's if, then, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. In other words, if you continue in my word, to use the way the Lord Jesus puts it in John 14, 21, you shall be my disciples. If you continue in my word, I will manifest myself to you and the Father will manifest himself to you. We will walk together, two in agreement, see? So what's he saying? He's saying that after conversion, there are decisions we make that need to be guided by the Word of God as we make them, as we walk, as he says. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Why is he telling Joshua that? Well, the nation of Israel had just gone through 70 years of captivity. And why were they in the captivity, according to the Bible? Because God didn't like them? No. Why were they in the captivity? Because of disobedience. Because taking advantage of the grace and love of God over multi-generational disobedience. I mean, not just a few weeks or a few months. God is long-suffering, but there comes a time and they had suffered the consequences and come through them and learn from them. You who are parents, isn't that what you want from your children? Don't delight in spanking them and disciplining them. The whole goal of the discipline and the spanking is improvement, restoration, a better walk afterwards. Well, God's not any different. In fact, well, God is a lot different. He's better at it, and he does it more lovingly, probably, than we do. But the principle is the same. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. See, this is where we see then that they are a sign, they're representative. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. You know who that is? That's a messianic title. Semach in the Hebrew. It's one of the great messianic titles of our Lord Jesus. And I invite you to check me out on it if you'd like to when you go home. But that word Semach is only used four times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Translated the branch in each time. The first time is in Isaiah Chapter 4, the second time is in Jeremiah 23. The third time is right here. And the fourth time is in Zechariah chapter 6. And each one of them represent one of the four Gospels. In Isaiah, the Gospel of John. In Jeremiah, the Gospel of Matthew. The reference is my, my, my servant, the branch, the king. In Jeremiah 23. Yahweh said, Kenu, the Lord our righteousness, right, is the name by which we'll be called. Here, the Gospel of Mark, emphasizing our Lord is servant of Yahweh, servant of Jehovah. And then in chapter 6, he says, behold, my, the branch, my, the man, 
Behold the man, my servant, the branch. The Gospel of Luke. Fascinating how all this comes together in the Word of God. The unity, the divine unity of the Scriptures. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, that would likely be the cornerstone of Isaiah 28:16. Behold, I'll engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land. And how long? How long will it take for him to do it? And one day, turn over a few pages to chapter 14, the last chapter in Zechariah. We'll spend more time there, Lord willing, on Sunday. But verse 6, you shall come to pass in that day that there shall be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. One day, Isaiah chapter 66 before verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Shall a nation be born at once? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Praise God when God is in it. Yes. So this is the national conversion of the nation. The, the entire nation will look to the one whom they have pierced. We'll see that in the later chapters of Zechariah. And we know from other scriptures that will happen at the end of the tribulation period when our Lord comes just as they're about to be annihilated. The city of Jerusalem will have been encircled by Gentile armies from all over the world gathered and staged in the valley of Megiddo, but they will come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, what Joel calls the, oh, it's the valley of vision where they've made a decision to oppose God and to wipe out His people. That's coming. God's going to let them come to that extremity before the Lord Jesus appears like lightning in the east, see. And they will look upon Him whom they've pierced and they will mourn like they mourn for an only son. That's what the Word of God teaches. The nation shall be converted in that day, verse 10, says the Lord of hosts, everyone shall invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. How many of you have a vine in your backyard? I mean, where you grow grapes. <laughs> I don't mean wild vines. How many have fig trees in your backyard? What's the importance of a vine or a fig tree? Well, in First. Kings chapter 4 verse 25, we read during the time of Solomon that that is an indication of prosperity for the people in the nation of Israel when they dwelt everyone under his own vine and under his fig tree. I'll read it exactly as it's in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings 4.25. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Each man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan in the north as far as Beersheba in the south all the days of Solomon. It's also in Micah chapter 4 verse 4. It's always representative of safety and prosperity. In other words, a picture of the kingdom. The Solomonic kingdom was a picture of the millennial kingdom, wasn't it? Peace. Prosperity. Would you like to see that on this earth again sometime? We were made for that, beloved. And that's, that's what I'm living for today. I'm not living for what's happening in this world now. I did. 
I'm not living for moving up the corporate scale and the corporate ladder. I did. Trampling upon others to get to the top first. I did. That's all past now. That's all Adam. <laughs> That's all placed in the, in the place of death. Reckon yourself dead to it, the scripture says. And alive to God, to his purposes, to his kingdom, to what he wants. This is what he's talking about that's coming. And then quickly, over in chapter 6, I'm skipping ahead because the, the theme is so powerful here to continue thinking about the Lord Jesus. We've seen the crisis moment for the nation of Israel and their conversion. We've seen the announcement of the first coming. And then here, the second coming, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 6, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah who have come from Babylon. So here they are, people from the captivity in Babylon that didn't come back when Joshua and Zerubbabel came back in 539. They haven't even come back in the time frame in between. Now we're at 519 B.C. and here they come and they have this gift of gold and silver that some of the, the uh, Jewish people that were still back in Babylon sent through them to the people of the remnant that had gone back to the land. Okay, So he says, receive the gift. They've come. And go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown. The Hebrew there is really in the plural, two crowns, but you don't really make two separate crowns. It's a crown within a crown, the, the silver and gold woven together. In other words, an elaborate crown, a magnificent crown. And... Take that crown and set it on the head of, and we already. Who is the political leader of the remnant that's returned? Joshua or Zerubbabel? It's Zerubbabel, right? And the crown goes on the seat of government, not on the seat of religion, right? So we have then. We were reading along. Oh, they're making an elaborate crown. Well, they're going to set it symbolically on Zerubbabel, right? But they don't. They set the crown on Joshua, the high priest. And the Lord tells him, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. And then speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch. You realize Pilate? Years later, would use those exact same words referring to the Lord Jesus in John 19. You remember, he says, behold, the man when he brought him out after he scourged him and he was quoting scripture. I doubt if he knew he was, but God was going to see to it that he said this. And here's the fourth reference to the branch in the Old Testament. In what sense is he a branch? You ever thought of that? He's a branch of the new humanity. So there's Adam, the first Adam, and the second man. The Lord, there's only two humanities. The Adamic humanity and that humanity in Jesus Christ. And you and I, tonight, right now, are in one of those two. That's it. A child can understand that, can't they? <laughs> You're in one of those two by your choice, too. Because God's made provision, and you've heard the gospel in a meeting like this. You've heard the gospel enough times to know. 
From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Shall build it. They're talking about rebuilding the second temple, you remember. And he shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. Oh, here we have it. That's where the whole movement of history has been going. The seed of the woman who was promised in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, right? We didn't have enough information there to know that information was gradually unfolded in the progression of biblical revelation. But when we get to the time of David, and David writes Psalm 110, and what does David say in Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You are a priest forever according to the order of Aaron? No, Melchizedek, the king priest of Genesis 17, you see. Or Genesis 14, I'm sorry. Yeah. Only here that it's priest king more than the priesthood. Priest king. You see where the pharaohs got the idea? Satan knew about it. And, and many of the world rulers down through history, the big empire world rulers, considered themselves to be priests and kings of their nation. But that they were all a cheap imitation, if you'll pardon the, the directness of that, compared to the one that God intended. See, see that? A king who is not molded by the compassion of a priest that wants to advocate, wants to help and nurture like a priest, can be a despotic ruler, can't he? Can be heartless. And that's not God's intention for rulership. Aren't you glad? Maybe you had a father like that. Maybe you had an elder somewhere along in your past like that. Maybe you had a boss that you worked for that was like that. Well, your priest king is not like that. Jesus Christ. He's loving, merciful, compassionate. Will be there for you every time. Will not throw you overboard when you fail like others do. Yeah. Doesn't that warm your hearts? Our Lord Jesus, you remember, in Passion Week, they all came, the three big basic groups that were going to question him and challenge his authority. By whose authority did you cleanse the temple? You remember? They came and the, the Herodians came and the Sadducees came and the Pharisees came and then a scribe came. And then the Lord Jesus, after he silenced them all, and Matthew says, they durst not ask him any more questions. And the Lord says, yeah, okay. Now it's my turn. I got a question for you. When David wrote some hundred, Psalm 110 and said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How can he be David's God and David's son also? Answer me. They didn't have an answer. What is the answer? There's only one answer. Isaiah 7.14, what's the answer? That's right. It had to be a virgin birth. It's the only way you're going to have 
David's God be his son. See? The incarnation, the virgin birth. God had it all figured out. He has it all figured out. He's working out his plan. We'll see as we move into verses 9 to 14, and we'll just do a synopsis through there. There's so much detail there. But as we said, there are basically two oracles. You can look through them ahead of time before Sunday morning, and you'll get more out of the, the passage as we look at it. Chapter 9, 10, and 11, the primary emphasis on his first advent. Chapters 11, 10, 11, and 12, his second advent. Both, both sections begin with the burden or the oracle, the prophecy of the Lord given to Zechariah. There's someone here tonight that maybe has heard this and maybe you haven't made your decision yet about the Lord Jesus. Don't give up on asking questions. Keep asking. Keep searching. As long I don't mind any questions as long as you let me answer from the Bible. <laughs> I'm not going to answer from the pseudepigrapha because I don't believe the pseudepigrapha. I'm not going to answer from the morning newspaper. I don't believe it either. Boy, the journalism is... Well, it's not journalism anymore, is it? It's propaganda. It is so tarnished these days. Uh, the Word of God is truth. Thankful you're teaching it there at Emmaus, Stefan. I haven't seen you in, I think it's almost 30 years. Sandy Creek, 1988, I think it was. So we thank the Lord for those who want to encourage our young people, encourage all of us to walk the walk talk the talk, to be real, to be authentic disciples of the Lord Jesus. Amen? So, Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your grace. What a chapter to show our desperate need. Filthy garments, Lord, that we can't get off of us. We tug at them and tear at them and try to get where we can't get rid of the filthy garments. Maybe someone tonight has filthy garments and they're being aware of it, being made aware of it by your Holy Spirit tonight in their deep inner source and heart, Lord. And we pray, Lord, they will see that the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, he alone can remove and wants to remove the filthy garments and replace them with rich robes. Satan standing, resisting and opposing. Lord, do that work in our heart tonight, we pray. For those of us who are disciples, Lord, help us to walk in a way that exhibits who we are. Your children, children of the living God. Children who understand the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and other characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts and lives. Be with us as we travel home, Lord. So much that can happen on these roads. Give us a good night of rest and a good beginning tomorrow as we live for you. Thank you again for all your glory and grace you've shown to us. And we give you thanks in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.